Let's start by praying. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time gathered around the word, gathered around your table. And we're grateful for the word of Zechariah. Uh, we pray that, that you'd enable us through uh, his words to find understanding, uh, to hear your voice, to discern what it is you're speaking to your people this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're in our 11th week in this series on the Minor Prophets. We find ourselves in the book of Zechariah, and I think it's pretty obvious from the start, this one's different. Like, Zechariah is not like any of the other Minor Prophets. The way he writes is completely different. He is unique, Zechariah. You don't have to read far in the book of Zechariah before you start to see some strange stuff unfolding. It gets weird real quick because he's having these visions, sometimes dreams, and it gets kind of crazy. We all know dreams get weird. It feels like some sort of like eccentric soap opera is unfolding. You know how this goes. Like, like dreams are like that. The plot doesn't make any sense. The characters who show up in your dreams, they don't make any, any sense, right? At least in, until you wake up. Before you wake up, it makes perfect sense. It's all fitting together. Soap operas are the same way. You ever like sit there with like your grandmother or somebody watching the soaps? They've been watching for like 10 years, so they know what's up. And this all makes sense to them, but you're watching and it's like, this is ridiculous. How does any of this fit together? They're like, oh, no, no, that, that makes sense. That guy, yeah, he was dead, but he's, he's not dead anymore. He, he's back. It's all good. It all makes sense. Wait, that's the gospel, isn't it? Okay, see, it's, it's this funny thing, see? And that's exactly what Zechariah is doing. You begin to realize what's happening. If you've ever been in another country, their soaps get even crazier, right? Soaps are weird. There are all these things at play you don't necessarily understand, you're not privy to when you come to this, this soap opera that's unfolding. And Zechariah, just, it just feels that way. It gets really, really strange. In the next chapter, if you read a little bit further past chapter 4, you'll see this scroll. It is a giant scroll, and the scroll has wings, okay? And the scroll is flying around and entering into people's homes. While all this is happening, this cartoon is unfolding. Zechariah has something reasonable to say, something that, that makes perfect sense. But you, you go further. You find a woman. Her name is wickedness. Of course, it's what anybody would name their child, wickedness. And wickedness has been trapped inside a basket. And then two other women appear, but they have wings, like the scroll, remember. They have wings, wings like a stork, of course. And the stork-winged women fly in. They swoop in and they capture this woman named wickedness in a basket and carry her away. You can get what Zechariah is saying. God is taking wickedness away from his people. But why are you saying it like that? Zechariah is unique. He's using all this, this eccentric imagery, this vivid imagery to try and tell us something, to help us understand something. And it's not the sort of imagery we would choose. This is like the Wizard of Oz. It's like the Wicked Witch just sending her flying monkeys. It's terrifying. You guys remember that scene? That's what Zechariah is explaining. That's the sort of thing that's happening. It's, it's all this symbolism all this imagery that doesn't make any sense to us, but to the people Zechariah is writing to, all this imagery, it's normal for them. All these symbols, they make sense. They're speaking something powerfully. Zechariah has something strange but beautiful to say. And so you have to pay attention. You have to listen. You have to kind of sift through it. 
You might have noticed last week, we kind of made this shift, a bit of like a turn in the book of the 12. Last week we were in Haggai, this week in Zechariah, next week Malachi, and there's kind of like a shift in tone. So far in, in the, the book of the 12, we've been talking about this, remember, the book of the 12 is all these 12 minor prophets having been compiled into one scroll, right? And that's because they believed there was a kind of plot, a narrative, an overarching story that all these 12 individual prophets were telling. As you get to the end where we are, there's like this change, there's this shift that's happening. The tone is now shifting from this ominous sense of warning. You read the Minor Prophets and you have this sense that something terrible is about to happen. Over and over again, it's just hanging over our heads, right? And then, then something incredible starts to, to happen. Zechariah and Haggai, they begin to speak hope. And, and there's a hope specifically attached to the temple. They keep coming back to the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. Their hope is connected to all of this. There's a hope in the midst of their painful circumstance. All the other prophets have been telling us about the painful circumstance that is coming for them. They've warned them again and again. Look what's coming. Don't ignore it. This is going to happen. But now that they find themselves in the midst of the painful circumstance, Zechariah is saying, hope. There is hope. And again, it's connected to the temple. Haggai and Zechariah are like, are like a prophetic duo. They're two people talking at the same period of time about the same topic. But they just do it in very different ways. Haggai, if you remember from last week, Haggai tells you the date of everything he's doing. He's like a note taker. Like, he's like the secretary who keeps perfect notes. That's Haggai. He's like a type A personality, and he wants you to know these things. And he gets it done in just two chapters. Zechariah, on the other hand, is like the artist. Zechariah is the visionary. It's going to take him 14 chapters to say the same kind of stuff because he wants to paint a picture for you. It's beautiful. It's this incredible thing that he's doing, and you have to pay attention to it or you'll miss something really good. They're calling them to hope, but that's just not an easy task, though, for either Haggai or Zechariah. It's not easy because many of the people that they're speaking to were children and saw the temple in its original glory. They remember what it took to build the temple. They remember that Solomon conscripted essentially an army of laborers, slaves. It's a sad reminder of what was going on sometimes. And he built this temple. They don't have that power. They don't have those resources. They don't have the people. They'll never be able to do that again. That's what they're aware of. They live with this awareness. Over and over again, whatever they manage to build will be just a shadow of the former glory of the temple. It's never going to be good enough. It's never going to get back to that. And it's in the midst of that painful circumstance, them coming to grips with that reality, that Zechariah steps forward and he says those words that you may have heard before. He says, no, 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 no. Listen, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I know it sounds ridiculous, but this is not by might or power. God doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need your power. He doesn't need your resources. God doesn't need them to build a temple that they might deem as glorious enough. No. Yahweh is the glory of the temple. And this is why they can say, 
Build the temple. Don't worry about whatever it's going to look like. Build the temple, and God will dwell with his people again. You just build the temple, and God will bring the glory. It's this incredible thing that they're saying. We know it doesn't look like much, but God will make it glorious. If there's anything you kind of get in Zechariah, it's that God is establishing his kingdom, establishing his people through ways we very often deem as unconventional, impractical, small, insignificant, outright impossible sometimes. That's the kingdom he's building. This is the way he's chosen to do it, not by might nor by power. And if we don't pay attention, we will miss that. We will miss what God is doing in the midst of our circumstances. We will miss the incredible thing God has in mind. Why? Because we're so busy looking for something more glorious. We're so busy looking for something more impressive. And we will miss it. And Zechariah is saying, don't miss it. You're too busy looking for might and power and influence. And you're going to miss what the Spirit is saying. You're too busy looking for might and power and not listening for the Spirit. This is a thing God is going to do by His Spirit. It's incredible. And the writers of the New Testament, they understood it. Because if you've ever read the New Testament, you've seen Zechariah. You're familiar with him. They quote Zechariah over and over again. I think it's 11 different times he's directly quoted. They're using his words exactly in the New Testament. They want to use him again and again. They paid attention to Zechariah. In the Gospels or the book of Revelation especially, you're going to see him come up. But not just directly being quoted, they're going to borrow his images. They're going to plagiarize Zechariah again and again. They want to use these pictures that Zechariah uses countless times. They allude to things Zechariah said over and over again. When they wanted you to understand who Jesus was, what he looked like, what his life was like, they went to Zechariah again and again. And we're just not all that familiar with Zechariah, we think. There, there are so many words, though, so many images from the New Testament that you think are, are just New Testament writings. You're actually more familiar with Zechariah than you realize. It's all there. You thought it came from somebody else, but it's Zechariah's originally. Like if, for example, in our culture, when someone comes to me and says, hey, I just started following Jesus. I'm trying to figure this thing out. I'm trying to learn more about Jesus and about the church and how I fit into all of this. I don't know what any of this means. What should I be reading? I want to learn more. It's like everybody knows what you're supposed to say, right? You, go read, you need to read John. John is all about belief. It's about faith, right? And he's telling you all these things to get you to, to believe. Or, or read Matthew or, or Luke. They tell these painstakingly detailed stories about the life of Jesus. They have all of this information. You should read those, right? But here's the thing. In the early church, they don't have the Gospels yet. They haven't quite been written. They're being told all over the place, but they haven't been put down yet. So instead, what they would say when somebody came to them and said they wanted to know more about Jesus, they'd say, well, you need to go read Isaiah. You need to go read Ezekiel. Or you need to go read Hosea. That, that will give you an idea. No, no, you should read Zechariah. Because they turn to him again and again. This is who Zechariah is. Yes, it's strange, but if you give just like a peek into Zechariah, you will find something that sounds more familiar to you than you realized. He's saying some things that are really important 
And that's really all we're going to be able to do. We're just going to be peaking today. That's kind of what this series has been, but especially today. There's just too much. There's 14 chapters. We're not going to cover everything. So it's just like a, it's like a sample we're getting today. But that's okay. I was thinking about it. We, we all like a sample. And it kind of gave me flashbacks to the mall. You guys remember when we used to actually go to the mall, right? I'm not talking like the summit. I'm not talking about outdoor shopping. I'm talking about that indoor experience of the mall. And, and we would all do that thing where we went like two or three times past the food court because there might be a guy with a sample. Who knows what kind of samples they might be given. We all love a sample, right? So that's what we're doing today. So he, let, let's just kind of like jump in. Sample of Zechariah. First chapter. One of the earliest visions Zechariah has. He says there are four horns. If you read apocalyptic literature, and Zechariah kind of broadly falls into that. A lot of the things he says sounds a lot like what you see at the end of Daniel and what you see in Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a whole genre in the ancient world. It's that strange way of writing that we're so unfamiliar with. Normally, horns are like a symbol of, of power. It makes sense. It's a power of strength. These horns are representative of, of that kind of thing. But he says, there are also four craftsmen. These four craftsmen, it's a word in Hebrew that means something like carpenter or, or, carpenter or, or blacksmith. Again, keep in mind, the whole book is about what? Rebuilding a temple. And here are these builders. These four builders, craftsmen, men who work with their hands, right? They appear. They're juxtaposed against these four horns. And the angel explains to Zechariah. He says, well, the four horns are those who scattered the people of Judah. Empires, armies, Assyria, Babylon. That's who the four horns are. But here's the mysterious thing. The angel tells Zechariah, but the craftsmen, the, the carpenters, have appeared to throw down the horns. To terrify them and throw them down. It's like, what sense does that make? The carpenters are going to confront the empire? How? What are they going to do? And then you start to realize, like, oh, wait, I, I know this. This is familiar. That word in Hebrew, it's always translated into Greek to this word technona, right? A technona. <laughs> Mark tells us early on in Jesus' ministry, he goes back home to Nazareth and he's going to preach. And the people hear about this Jesus who's come to preach in their town. And they say, wait a second. Our Jesus? Like Jesus of Nazareth? The carpenter? And Mark's like, yep, the carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Why do we need to know that? Because Mark wants you to understand Jesus is the one who's going to overthrow empires. Jesus is the one who's going to break the back of these oppressive powers that exist in our world. That's who he is, right? It's amazing. He's the, he's the tectona. It all makes sense. It all fits together. You go further, and there are all these incredible promises being made. He just keeps laying one thing out after another. Chapter 2, an angel says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. That's hard to imagine because they're about to have to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You ever read Nehemiah? You know that's the story. They have to rebuild Jerusalem. But it's this figurative image, this idea, something spiritual is being spoken here, right? Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. God says, verses later, I'm coming to live among you. So God dwelling with his people in a city without walls. God's presence no longer contained within the four walls of the temple or of Jerusalem. God's presence moving outward. It's this beautiful idea, right? All the old barriers being removed. 
There's this hope, and no one is excluded from it any longer. The walls are coming down. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. You read further, chapter 3, and there's this priest who appears, a very familiar figure to the people Zechariah is writing, an important man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua is standing in this vision that Zechariah is having. He's standing before God in filthy rags. It's his temple garb, but now it's just destroyed. It's dirty, it's filthy. And he stands before God, and alongside him, accusing him, is Satan. Zechariah in Hebrew calls him the accuser. That's where we get that, that language from, is from this passage of chapter 3. And the angel says something powerful to Joshua. He looks at him and he says, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Like, that sounds just like Paul. Paul says that we're clothed in righteousness. It makes you think of Luke 15, a son who comes home filthy in rags, and his father says, you know what? No, bring the best robe. Clothe him in fine garments. It's all familiar. Zechariah is saying something, something so beautiful, right? Amazing promises, one after another. But Zechariah is not just making empty promises that sound really nice, that make us feel better, Zechariah is making promises that are concrete, that are here and now. He says these promises are certain. Why? Because there's this figure who becomes more and more clear throughout the book. A Messiah, a coming one. And this coming anointed one is who all these promises rest on. Here's another familiar line. One of the most memorable lines in all of Zechariah. We read it every year on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. That sounds familiar. We remember that scene. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, surprisingly riding not a war horse, nothing spectacular. He's riding someone else's donkey. A donkey, it sounds kind of like the disciples might have stolen. They're going to give it back. They're going to give it back. They're going to tell the guy, I guess. It's somebody else's donkey, right? It's familiar. We know this. Jesus, humble and lowly, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the coming king who makes these promises sure. And that's the way Zechariah tells us the king will come. This beautiful picture. You go further. Chapter 11. There's this painful reminder that we don't always want that king. There's a painful reminder that we don't always want a savior. We have something better in mind, a different way. And so he lays out the way in which God establishes this shepherd figure, okay? There's a shepherd figure. There's this this person who has been given to the flock. The flock has been oppressed for too long. That's the people of God, right? And God has established this person as shepherd over them. He's to care for this oppressed flock of sheep. And the shepherd does what he's supposed to do. He's a good and faithful shepherd. He shepherds them well. But for some reason, the flock doesn't want to be shepherded. Zechariah says they detest the shepherd. The flock hates him. And they don't just hate him. If you read further, it starts to sound like Isaiah 53. In chapter 12, verse 10, 
He says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. It's the cross. It's this painful thing. They don't just detest the shepherd. They don't just reject him. They pierce him. It's familiar. As crazy as Zechariah is, all this stuff is familiar. You can put the pieces together and see why this this prophet is so important for us. When you read the Gospels and they tell you Jesus is the carpenter, it's on purpose because they want you to remember what Zechariah said. He's the carpenter who overthrows empires. When they tell you he's the son of David over and over again, they want you to know Jesus is that king we've been waiting on. He's the king from the line of David. He's the good shepherd that the flock has rejected. He's the one who was pierced. All these strange visions bring us to Jesus. All these outlandish promises that Zechariah is going to make. And it is this grand and beautiful vision of the kingdom of God that Zechariah is painting for us. But it's all founded in this coming one all founded in Jesus, we begin to realize as you read more. And I think it seems so obvious to us, right? Like, we read in Matthew when when Jesus comes rolling into Jerusalem on a donkey, like, we get it. Here's Jesus coming in the way Zechariah said he would. It seems pretty obvious, guys. Where are you at? Why would you not be there for this? Why, Why would you not recognize what's happening But the thing that's so haunting about Zechariah is this this line we read today. It's one of the most powerful. Years ago, April and I were reading. It was 2019 when we did this as a church. We were reading through Scripture together. And we were in Zechariah. And I remember just being startled by those words in chapter 4. Who dares despise the day of small things? And all of us, like, quietly raise our hands. Me. I hate the small stuff. I want something bigger and better and grander. That's what I want, right? The people of God found themselves in a unique position. They had come home from exile. Jonathan told us about that last week in Haggai, right? Cyrus allows them to come back home. They're home now, but home doesn't feel like home anymore. Home has been destroyed, and they live with that awareness that it wasn't just destroyed. They caused it to be destroyed. They were warned, and they ignored it. And so they live with this painful awareness. Home will never be what it once was because of us. And we can't ever get back to that. They live with that painful awareness, right? And every day feels like the day of small things. They're just waiting on something bigger, something better. The temple they were building, it felt small and unimpressive. The city that they remembered as glorious, their, their crown and their glory, Jerusalem. It was weak and defenseless, really, at this point. Nothing really to write home about Jerusalem. It was in a shambles. And so they, they despised the day of small things they found themselves in. It wasn't much different in Jesus' day, though. It was the same routine. They found themselves in the same kind of experience. They were still waiting They still felt like they were living in the day of small things. They're still under the power of an oppressive empire, and they cannot shake that no matter how hard they try. With every rebellion, 
Nothing seems to change. They're still oppressed. They're still waiting on God to rescue them. This is what they're longing for, hoping for over and over again. And then the king, the carpenter, the good shepherd, surprisingly comes into town. The problem is, he's riding someone else's donkey. The problem is, they, they don't see it. Because they've been looking for something more glorious, something bigger, not small things, right? And all these people who knew the scroll of Zechariah, all these people who had learned it inside out, they were nowhere to be found. No, the, the crowds who came with Jesus into Jerusalem, who celebrated, who, who said those words, Hosanna to the son of David. That was the poor and the sick and the needy. It was the desperate masses. That was who came with Jesus. Meanwhile, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priests, the leadership of Israel, they're nowhere in sight in that moment. They're somewhere else. Why? Because they know for Jesus to do what they need him to do, he will have to be much more impressive than that. He's going to need more than somebody else's donkey to do that kind of work. And so they ignore him. They miss the whole thing. They can't see it. They're too busy trying to kill him. He's just a problem. He cannot be the coming one. He's just a distraction for the masses, right? Jesus feels like a poster boy for the day of small things. What can he do? This unimpressive, humble man riding on a donkey. What is he going to do for us? How is that carpenter going to overthrow empires? And so they miss it. And again, it's easy for us. It feels so obvious to us to sit there and say, come on now, how do you miss this? And if we're being real for a minute, here's what we know. If we're, we're honest about our culture the America that we live in, we have created a culture in which it is just as easy to ignore Jesus. It's, it, it's easy to just be unimpressed by Jesus in our culture. As much as Jesus has shaped our culture, as much as the kingdom of God has so affected our ethic and our morality as a culture, our culture has a long and well-documented love affair with might and power, with charisma and success and celebrity. Go down the line. That's who we are. That's what we value. That's what we pay attention to. Those are the kinds of people we pay attention to. Those are the kinds of people we entrust our lives to so often. They're the ones we follow on social media. They're the ones whose stuff we read. We want to know about their lives the reason we vote for who we vote for and certain people end up in certain elections? Like, how does this, this all happen? Because we value that certain subset of things, right? Might, power, wealth, success. We've been doing it for a long time. And the sense we have is that those are the people who can really affect change in our world. Those are the people who can really make something happen. And if there's anything we can all agree on at the present divided moment in our culture, it's that we want change. Everybody wants change. The problem is they all disagree on what that change is supposed to look like. Are we supposed to go back to the old way? Or is there some like new utopian vision? And somewhere in the middle is the kingdom of God that is neither of those things. This is where we find ourselves. And so often... We entrust ourselves to might and power, to wealth and success, to celebrity. 
In essence, what we find in our culture, what we see at work, is a culture that is longing for the kingdom of God. They just don't believe Jesus is the king to get us there. The vision sounds good, but we just don't, don't think you can actually get us there. We need someone more impressive. And we all wish we could say that that wasn't true of the church sometimes. We all wish we could say that the church is not the same old song and dance. And it's not always. But very often it has been throughout history. We have entrusted ourselves to the same things, to success and charisma, to celebrity and might and power. The church wants that. We want good things. Think about it. Like, like we want the world to be changed by Jesus. We want our culture to be transformed by Jesus. We want the church to grow. But so many days in the church, be honest, you're wondering, like, why am I here? What happened? Nothing changed. I'm not being changed. Years pass. I'm not changing. It feels like the day of small things over and over again. We want something bigger. We want something better, more exciting, more impressive. We want the kingdom and the way that Zechariah is talking about it. Something better to come along. But the problem is, very often, we entrust ourselves to charisma and success, to might and to power. We're just waiting on something better. We entrust ourselves to the newest strategy to grow the church, the newest strategy to change our culture. Churches churn out programs one after another over and over again, assuming that the kingdom will come the same way success in business does. Just apply the same concepts. Just approach things the same way. If we've got lots of money and lots of people, we must be doing something right. And that's the way we function. This is what we're doing. We entrust ourselves to these things because we want to be impressive. And that's not just true of the church. That's true of the, the people in the church, you and I. Like, we, we wrestle with that, wanting to be impressive. I feel it as a pastor sometimes. Just, just, just wanting to feel like, hey, people think I'm actually good at what I do. Forget good. Kyle's just all right at what he does. He knows how to do what he does, right? I just, just, just that, please. Or as a parent, I just want to get it right. I don't want to drop the ball. I just, I just want to make a difference in my child's life and the difference that I'm choosing to make, right? Not a bad one, but a good difference, and so much of parenting just feels sometimes like I'm just changing diapers and making Easy Mac. I'm just, I'm just taxiing my kid around. I'm just a chauffeur for my child between all these different activities. And what I'm desperate for is to make a difference in their life. I'm hoping that this is going to have some sort of concrete difference years down the road. It always just feels like the day of small things. It happens. You feel it at work? Like you... You longed for the day when you would be self-reliant, independent, self-sustaining. You could take care of yourself, have something for, your, for yourself and for your family. And then you realize, like, work just doesn't always give you that. It's not always satisfying in the way you thought it would be. It doesn't change much. You're not noticed for your work very often. Your work never seems to end. You busy yourself over and over again, and you never seem to make enough, amass enough to feel like you've done anything important, work is, is tough. We feel like we're, we're living through the day of small things. If you're single, you're just waiting on the day when you'll have that relationship that's going to change everything. You're waiting on something that feels better, right? In whatever you find yourself in, you want something more impressive, something bigger, 
something more important. You want your life to matter. It feels like the day of small things, and, and frankly, you've had enough. But we live there sometimes. And it's in the middle of that that Zechariah says, keep building. Just keep putting one stone on top of another. Build the temple. I know you don't know what to do. It all feels aimless. I'm giving you direction. Build the temple. Put one stone on top of another. And I think Jesus is, this, is saying the same thing to us. Just keep putting one stone on top of another. We're a living temple. We're like living stones. This is the reality Paul is speaking to us. Keep building. Don't despise the day of small things. We so often do. Don't despise the day of small things because the problem is you might miss Jesus. That's exactly what happens when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. A people who despise the day of small things, who are looking for something more impressive and they miss Jesus. And what I love about Zechariah is, is he knows what we're hungry for. He's just building throughout this this 14 chapters that he's writing. And as he gets to the last chapter, he does something amazing. He leaves us with his grand vision of the kingdom of God. It's, it's chapter 14, verse 20, if you want to look at it. He says, on this day, on the day that the kingdom comes, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. The cooking pots will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Kind of, a, again, an interesting way of expressing oneself, right? But if you ever read Exodus, that phrase, holy to the Lord, it's written in a very special place on this metal plate that they hang on the head of the high priest as he enters into the temple. Holy to the Lord. Marked as just unspeakably sacred. What's happening here in this place is unspeakably holy. And Zechariah says, God is about to write holy to the Lord on the bells of all the horses. God's about to, to make every pot in Jerusalem holy. Like they're the bowls that sit at the altar in the temple. It's an image he's trying to, to show us, right? The mundane, the small things that we so despise, God is making sacred. God's making these small things that we so often despise sacred and holy. He's using these things for something beyond, right? They feel like they're building a temple and it'll never be anything important. And he's saying, no, 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 no. While you're building the temple, God is constructing one of another sort. God is making the earth his temple, right? It's a picture. God's holiness is no longer contained within the walls of this temple or even Jerusalem. He says it's spreading out even to, to Judah. All of the pots will be holy. The common things are becoming sacred. His presence is moving outward, inhabiting all of creation. The kingdom is coming, right? But you're not surprised you know this was coming. If you've been around for like 10 or 11 weeks and you've been following along with the minor prophets, they've been kind of moving us here. I couldn't help but remember. Like think about, uh, just a few weeks ago, Jonathan was in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 has this beautiful verse. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says something that, that, that ought to just stick in our hearts and minds. 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's presence moving outward, right? God is about to baptize all of creation with the knowledge of his glory. It's this beautiful idea. You go further. Remember Haggai last week. Haggai 2, verse 9. Here they are working on a temple that they feel like is never going to matter. It's never going to amount to anything. Certainly not like it used to be. And Haggai says in chapter 2, verse 9, The glory of this present house you are building will be greater than the glory of the former house. It doesn't feel like it. It feels like the day of small things, right? But no, the glory of this present house you're setting your hands to, it will exceed the glory of the former house. Zechariah says it in chapter 2. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. God's presence is moving outward. God's presence cannot be contained within the four walls of the temple. God is doing something incredible. The barriers are being removed. Everything that kept us from God. The kingdom, we know, has come in Jesus and is still coming in ever-increasing measure. It's incredible. And this is the thing. Every follower of Jesus at least every follower of Jesus who has a pulse, like that, that stirs something in you. Even people who aren't followers of Jesus hear what is being talked about here, and there's this sense of longing, right? Because that's what we were made for. We were made for the rule and reign of God. We were made to live under his rule, not the kingdom of this world. And we sense it all the time when we see injustice, when we see inequity, when we see sin and death, it does something to us. It's a gut-wrenching experience. We can't forget it. It bothers us to our core, and it's because we were made for something else. Zechariah is holding out for us this kingdom. Not a kingdom that's abstract. It's not just pie in the sky. One day it'll all get better eventually when you die. No, no, no. A kingdom that is here and now, that is concrete. He says it's coming. It's here kingdom that you can sink your teeth into, real substance to this thing. He says it's here. God will dwell with us. He's painting this beautiful picture, remember. All the while, we despise the day of small things. We see the grand picture and we're so drawn to it. Yes, Zechariah, that is good. He's painting the picture. But I was thinking this week, there in the background of this, this, this painting, as he's doing his work, there's this faint figure there in the background, a king straddling a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, humble and lowly. And we can become so obsessed with the beauty and the glory and the hugeness of the kingdom of God that he's painting for us that we forget it's the king on the donkey who's taking us there. Don't miss the king. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't long for something more impressive and better. Recognize God is doing something here and now. You're going to miss Jesus if you don't. You're going to miss the kingdom if you don't. Because the kingdom is not about might or power. Zechariah says it is about the spirit. This kingdom that is coming, it's not about charisma or success, it's about the weakness of the cross. And as we come to the table, 
We're reminding ourselves of it. The band's going to come and lead us in, into worship again. Like as you come to the table, embrace the weakness of the cross. Embrace the small thing you may find yourself living through. Embrace, embrace the, the unimpressive nature of your experience at the present moment. What feels small and ordinary and mundane, like it's not going anywhere. Embrace it and recognize God is at work in it. Don't miss the incredible thing God is doing. Don't miss this incredible kingdom because you despise the small things. God is at work in the midst of it all. Let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments that you would speak, that you would help us to discern Jesus in the midst of all of this that's running through our minds on any given day. God, we thank you for the beauty of your holiness. We thank you, Lord, that, that you cannot be contained within four walls. We thank you that you are doing something sacred in us. That the place we find ourselves, the moment we're living through, it's precious to you. It's sacred to you. And God, we pray we would embrace it in the same way. As we come to the table, speak, we pray in Jesus' name.